Let's bow in prayer now as we begin this part of our service. Our Heavenly Father, we, we do lift our, our friend and brother up to you as he suffers and seeks answers to these sudden health problems. Uh, we ask you to sustain him and Kelly and the kids and, and Grace Community Church as, as he navigates these things, and we commend him to you. Father, we thank you for uh, the, the opportunity to open your word and to hear from you. We ask that you yourself would teach us and that you would give us ready hearts, ready minds. Help us to benefit by not only understanding your word, but applying it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, we became convinced that we had a mold problem in our house. We couldn't find any mold, but it kept showing up in me and my sinuses and my lungs, and we had to keep treating that over and over again. We did the Petri dish tests, and they came back negative. And uh, we learned that if mold is is in a sealed space, the spores don't get out to get in the Petri dish to grow, but the poisonous gases do get out, and you still have all the same symptoms. And so we had this guy come over who had trained a dog to find those sources of mold. And the dog could smell it coming through the walls or wherever it was. You don't have to tear your whole house down to find it that way. And so the guy comes over, and we're walking through the house. The dog's still outside. We walk through the house talking about it. He starts quoting Leviticus to me, where it talks about a mark of leprosy in a home, in a house. And he says to me, it's just like it was then. Sometimes you can clean it, but most of the time you just have to cut it out and throw that part away. You know, if you clean it and it stays clean, you're good. But if you can't clean it, if it comes back, then you got to cut that part of your house out and throw it away and put in something new. Well, the dog found the mold and we cut out a good portion of our home. And I read Leviticus 14 with a new level of understanding after that. We, we had a purity issue in our home. It was impure. We couldn't find the problem. But then when we found it, it took drastic measures to solve the problem. We had to cut things out and throw them away and buy new things. It's the only way to solve that particular problem. Well, today we're going to see a similar situation in the ancient church at Corinth. There was a purity problem, and we're going to see how that kind of purity problem is addressed in some situations. Now, there are two paths to purity in the church. One path involves repentance and cleansing. Unbelievers come to salvation, have all of their sins forgiven forever. They're purified and made a part of God's church. Believers who are sinning come to repentance again and are cleansed again and made right with our Lord. And that sin is taken out of the church by that cleansing. That's one path. And that's the path we see most of the time. God purifies his church by convicting us of our sins. We repent, we're restored, or by bringing in new believers who have repented and been cleansed of their sins. That's the path to purity that Paul has been harping on for most of four chapters as he addressed the tendency to have factions in the church and all of the factors that fed into that, the wrong thinking that enabled that sin. The things driving our sins are sometimes hard to identify 
So Paul spent a lot of time showing us the issues related to that sin of division among God's people. He addressed the whole package, not just saying, stop being divided, but talking about worldly wisdom and about forgetting the gospel and about boasting in people and about being selfish. All of that was rolled together into the package that fed into division. And then right at the end of chapter 4, he gave us a hint of that other path to purity. The last sentence, the last part of chapter 4, he says, he's talking in reference to his anticipated trip back to Corinth, and he says, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a spirit, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now that rod that he's referencing is a rod of discipline. It's a reminder of the heavy stick that a shepherd carried to uh, use to attack a wolf or a lion or a bear, whatever's trying to get the sheep. And it's a reminder of how a, a child is lovingly disciplined by a parent with a rod. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. So loving parents understand you know, children below a certain age only get punishment and reward. They're not real. They're not real. Uh, not able to process higher ideas yet. You don't need to sit them down and have a long conversation about it. It's yes or no, and you defy the no. It's going to hurt. They get that. And that's how God designed it. That's why He He prescribes the rod, and He says, if you won't, if you won't do that, you hate your child. You're too selfish to do the uncomfortable, and and you hate the child. I mean, that's what he says. So you, you got a heavy stick to crack the skull of a predator, and you've got a not-so-heavy stick to lovingly discipline a child to try to separate that child from his inherent foolishness. And that's the imagery that Paul is calling to mind when he says, do you want me to come with a rod when I come? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness? The rod represents this other path to purity. And Paul mentions it in the last two sentences of chapter 4 and then wields it in all of chapter 5. And so as we study chapter 5 today, we're going to think about this other path to purity. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus... When you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. There, therefore, 
Let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or of the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now what's happening in this passage is an instance of church discipline. Paul is instructing the congregation, what they have to do. There's a church member who's going to be excommunicated because of a refusal to repent of sin. And this, this is a case where washing didn't work, and now you have to cut out the poison and get it out of the house. That's what this is. Washing didn't work. This one has to be put out. Now, many people resist this concept, thinking that it's harsh and unloving, But the Bible is very clear, this passage among many, that it's neither of those things, and there are times when this has to be done. But even if you're on board with the concept, we have to admit that this passage is something of an unusual situation. And to understand it, we need just a little bit of background. There are two processes of church discipline revealed in the New Testament. Most people are familiar with the one revealed in Matthew 18. There are four uh, steps in the process that are revealed in that passage, and, and you move through them according to need. A sinning Christian is confronted privately, and if the person repents of the sin, that's the end of the process. But if he doesn't repent, you bring along a witness or two and confront again so that everything can be confirmed. It's not just one person's mind involved. And if they repent, that's the end of the process. But if they won't repent, then the elders of the church have to tell it to the church with enough detail for the whole church to call the person to repent. And if they repent, then everything is good. There may be a little uh, input in their life to help them not fall back into that, but they're they're still members in good standing. Everything's great. They repented of their sin. We've all done that. But if they will not repent, with the whole church calling them to repentance, then they have to be put out. And we put him out in hopes that he'll feel the weight of his guilt and come to repentance. Now, one euphemism for that final step in the process is turning the person over to Satan or handing the person over to Satan. And Paul uses that, that verbiage in writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.20. He says, Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. And Paul uses that same euphemism in this passage. So there's that four-step process of church discipline revealed in Matthew 18 that ends in excommunication if the person never repents through the whole process. There's a different process revealed in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. That passage says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. 
So this is excommunication by church leadership without the involvement of the whole church. And the reason for that is it's a factious man. And if you, you've got someone who is skilled at creating divisions in the church, you don't want to ask every single church member to go talk to them and hear their side of the story. You know, if that's the problem, the leadership has authority to put them out and announce to the church what they've done and warn that this person is dangerous. So those two processes are pretty clear, at, at least in theory. It can be murky sometimes knowing when to apply them, but you don't really have to wonder what to do. There are four steps or there are two warnings, and it's very clear. But 1 Corinthians 5 doesn't quite fit either one of those, does it? It's, it's kind of just one step. By apostolic fiat, put him out. <laughs> now, it's in the category with Matthew 18 because the whole congregation is involved. So we've only got those two ways. The whole congregation is involved or just the elders are involved and announce to the church what has been done. This is in that first category because this church had failed to act in confronting this sin, this thing has gone on for a long time, and everybody already knows all about it. This is flagrant sin, and so far this sin has been accepted in the church, either approved of or at least tolerated by the whole congregation. So Paul skips past the first three steps of Matthew 18, and moves directly to excommunication. This is a one-step process. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, this is where the sinning church member typically begins to try to practice law and have the whole thing thrown out on a technicality. Every time, a church is clumsy and messes up the first part of the process of Matthew 18. And every time a Christian is unsure and talks to another Christian before confronting somebody privately, and that guy finds out, someone else knows, they start to argue, you've done this wrong, therefore, let's just throw the whole thing out. I have never seen it not be that way. <laughs> That's just what the sinning heart wants to argue. No, 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 no. You blew it. Don't point anything at me. You messed up. This is all a moot point now. Well, 1 Corinthians 5 is instructive in how to handle things if a church has messed up this process of church discipline. It teaches us that even if the church has messed it up horribly, the sin still has to be dealt with the church still has to be purified. Clumsy implementation of Matthew 18 does not negate the need to deal with the sin in question. Now think about it. In this case, there's no reason at this point to, to go in private or to take a witness or even to tell it to the church. The church knows. Everybody old enough to understand the nature of this sin already knows what's happening. This is the quintessential example of a church making a mess of the church discipline process revealed in Scripture. By inaction, they missed their opportunity to do the first three steps. 
It's likely that some in the church were making the same tired arguments that we hear now to, to argue against obeying the Scripture in the category of church discipline. We, we want them to be in church so they can hear the gospel. That's the number one favorite. I'm not perfect either. Who am I to judge? That one comes in a close second. And then the one I've heard in a lot of situations, this is one of our people. We're not going to have an outsider, the new pastor who's been here for a year. We're not going to have an outsider come in here and divide our people. I know of one pastor who got fired and the adulterous deacon kept his position in the church because of that argument. We're going to have an outsider coming in messing up our church. By the way, having people hear more truth while they're vigorously rejecting that truth is not doing them a favor. Their condemnation is just being heaped up the more they know if they refuse to repent. So that argument of keeping them in the church so they can hear the gospel, just toss that one out. God is much more concerned with the purity of his church than he is with coddling those who rebel against him and stubbornly refuse to repent, especially while claiming to be in good standing with him. So this circumstance in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5 is not even a hard one. That might have been hard to do what was needed, but it's not hard to know what you're supposed to do. Some church discipline matters are murky. And there have been times over the years where I've struggled for months and months praying, trying to get to the bottom of something to even know what category you put it in. Is this that kind of unrepentant sin? This is not one of those hard ones. Verse 1 says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. How did genuine Christians come to think that that kind of blatant immorality is either acceptable or tolerable in the church. It's stunning to realize that, that the people Paul commended so vigorously in chapter 1 have come to believe that this is okay in the church. Paul explains how that happened. In verse 2, he says, you have become arrogant, literally puffed up. You have become puffed up and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. He's saying you, you should have grieved over this sin, absolutely, and then that grief should have moved you to take the necessary action. But he said they, they became puffed up, so puffed up with pride that they could not see the obvious. Maybe they were embarrassed. Maybe they didn't want to have to be uncomfortable. They didn't do what they needed to do. Now, this particular sin is vigorously forbidden in the Old Testament. And as Paul points out, it's not even a common sin among the, the unbelieving. People don't, people don't do this much. This is, most people would go gross, at least. And now this sin is in the congregation. And maybe a lot of people think it's a problem. 
Maybe they're not all approving of it. They may think it's a problem. Maybe they think they're trying to be patient. Maybe they're hoping that the, that the guy that did this is, is going to change if we just love him enough. Maybe they're thinking it's just too bad, but, but nobody was doing anything about it. What is to be done? I mean, if you were just suddenly inserted in a in this situation, at the point where Paul writes this letter, what are you going to do? You pick somebody to go privately and start the Matthew 18 process while the sin continues to fester? And then take a witness and verify everything and, and wait some more and then announce it to the church as if they didn't already know and set a date, let's say six weeks out. If he hasn't repented, then we're going to put him out. No, that, none of that makes any sense. And so Paul skips right past all of that and says this, beginning in verse 3, For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's saying, sir, this one, you can't wash this off. The contamination's too deep. You're going to have to cut it out, get it out of here for this house not to be making you sick. This sinner has refused to be cleansed. Remove the evil man from among yourselves. Let him feel his slavery to Satan. No longer allow the church to insulate him from knowing his true condition. You realize that a person can have great comfort among God's people without being one of God's people. God's people are nice to be around. They serve you. They're praying for you. They care about you. They're friendly. A person can be sinning as a genuine convert or as a, a false convert, and still enjoy all of these benefits of being associated with God's people. And, and it just kind of lets them keep going in their sin. They don't feel really challenged. And when that's the case, we have to cut out the cancer. We do it in hopes that they'll come to repentance, that they'll feel the weight of that and repent. And, and notice that the goal stated here is not that we're, we want to harm somebody or get even or put them in their place or show ourselves to be better or carry out some vengeful scheme. The goal is that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Rather than let them continue to reject the gospel, but hear it every week, put them out so that they feel their situation, so that they realize they really are slaves to Satan. They need to be rescued. You do it in hopes that they're going to be saved. The best hope for a sinning church member to come to repentance is for the church to love him enough to obey the Scripture, even to the point of church discipline. This is God's process for dealing with sin in the church. And there are many who have 
repented in that process. Most of them you never hear about because it happens in the first step or sometimes the second step. You never know because that was the end. Sometimes after three, they repent. But many are those who have been put out of churches and have come back, sometimes years later, to a church that loved them enough to do that to them. They've repented. They've been restored. So one goal of church discipline is the repentance and restoration of the sinner. That's what we hope will happen. That's what we're trusting God to do as we obey his scripture. But another goal, and just as important, is the purity of the church to protect the reputation of the church and the ability of the rest of the church to resist the influence of sin. Look at verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. As I studied this this week, I was struck by a, a remarkable understanding that hit me from this. This is so unlike a local megachurch CEO pastor who has publicly renounced any need for the Old Testament. Paul actually believes these new Christians who are not Jews to know the Old Testament well enough to understand all of this imagery from the Passover. You have to have read Exodus if you're not a Jew. You've got to have read that book to have any idea what he's talking about. And yet he clearly expects these new Gentile Christians to have already done that and to believe that it matters. I mean, these are obscure references to the Passover. He's not explaining any of it. He's just mentioning it so you'll make the connection. Leaven is another word for yeast. And in Scripture, leaven is used as a representation of sin and the pervading influence of sin. If you've got a lump of dough and you put a little bit of leaven just over in one side of that lump of dough and wait, the entire lump of dough will have been changed by that leaven. Not just some of it, all of it. Completely different now because of that leaven. That's just how yeast works. And that's just how sin works. And that's why yeast is an illustration of sin constantly through the Scripture. But if you haven't read the book of Exodus or heard it read to you and understood the details of the Passover feast and the the first Passover, when they had to get out of Egypt so fast, they didn't have time to let the bread rise, and they were eating unleavened bread and bitter herbs. If you didn't know that story, what Paul's saying here makes no sense at all. What's he talking about? If you didn't know that God had forbidden the Jews to eat anything with leaven in it during the Passover celebration every year, you'd be scratching your head reading those three verses. You couldn't even make the connection. 
So Paul is working on a fundamental understanding that these people are well acquainted with the Old Testament. Now, surely there there may have been some in their midst, maybe some brand new Christians, even newer than the rest of the church, who would have to have this explained to them. And that's fine. That's how life works until you know you don't know, and somebody has to explain something to you. But in, in, in the lives of the people where that was the case, Paul clearly expects them to learn that they'll have this explained to them, that it'll motivate them to read the rest of the Scripture, not just the New Testament. I pray we would be among those who would observe the whole counsel of God and could make these connections. Now, Paul's point in these verses is obvious. He's basically saying, do not imagine that you can tolerate sin in the church and not have it permeate the whole church. It's going to work just like that little bit of yeast in that lump of dough. He says, clean out the old leaven. Get the sin out of the church. And in a case like this one where washing wasn't going to get it done, you have to use the other path to purity. You have to cut this person out of the midst of the church. Now next, Paul addresses one of the typical obstacles to people doing church discipline. Christians are often confused about where to draw the lines. We we tend to blend how we relate to the people of the world with how we relate within the church, and it doesn't take very much of that until there are no discernible lines. Apparently, that's what had been happening in the church at Corinth. It's one of the reasons that they hadn't dealt with this sin. So look at verses 9 through 12. Paul says, I wrote in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to be associated with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Now, all of this is fine when you're talking about it in theory, but when a situation comes up and it's a brother or a sister that you love, People really struggle with this idea of creating a separation and with initiating that separation based on the sinful actions of the person in question and their refusal to repent. In every other realm of life, we deal with people who are committing horrible sins all the time, and we're polite to them, and we continue to try to build relationships with them, and if they have a problem, we'll try to help them out. We'll, I mean, we want to witness to them and be a part of their lives despite the sin that they're dealing with. We, maybe we invite them to church knowing that their lives are messed up and that they're sinning. And then the pastor tells us that we're all going to cut this friend off and not have any relationship anymore. And sometimes we want to resist that. But God is clearly making a radical distinction in this text between those sins that are to be expected in the children of the world versus the sins 
that are being tolerated among people who claim to belong to Jesus. He's drawing some hard lines here. People who claim to belong to Jesus are held to a very high standard. Now, we all sin pretty much every day, all the time, most of the time. But this, these church discipline issues are bold, unrepentant, obvious sins. The person's not trying to deal with them. He's trying to justify them. And God says that it won't be tolerated. And you have to make a separation. And there's much in the Scripture instructing us on how to draw those lines. Listen to Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. And this one will rattle your cage if you're struggling with this issue. Second John verses 10 and 11 say, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. One of the strong desires of sinning people, particularly if they're claiming to be Christians, is to get you to affirm them in their sin. That's what they're campaigning for. And so if you do anything to make it appear that they are justified, even giving them a greeting, then you are participating in their evil. That's how hard this line of separation is, by God's standards at least. Don't underestimate the damage that will come to a church when it decides to accommodate willful sin. Paul is actually alarmed that the church at Corinth cannot or will not judge this matter. He says, do you not judge those who are within the church? Obviously expecting a yes, we do answer to the rhetorical question. Countless Christians have said, who am I to judge? Paul is saying, do you not know how to judge in the church? Do you not do it? If you're a Christian committed to a local church, you have everything you need to make a judgment between good and evil in the church. And you have to do it. We talked last week about how we have to make judgments, but within certain boundaries. We want to discern, even judge, without being judgmental. We want to do it without thinking that we're the final authority. What we want to do is hold up the standard of Scripture and identify what does not meet that standard and confront that. Now, this one's not hard. So instead of taking most of four chapters like Paul did on the last one, he does this in just 13 verses. And then he moves on. (laughs) But here's how he wraps it up. In verse 13, But those who are outside, God will judge. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now that last sentence is a quote from Deuteronomy. 
And there are actually five separate verses in that book that use that verbiage. One of them is about dealing with false prophets. You stone them in order to remove the wicked man from among yourselves. The next one is about idol worship. The one, the next one is about refusing to abide by a judge's decision, just flaunting that decision from the judge. One is about a, a stubborn and rebellious son who refuses to obey his parents. And the last one is about fornication. All five of those were capital crimes under the Old Testament law. We're not asking you to execute anybody in the new covenant, <laughs> but that's how serious God is about these sins. And so in the Old Testament, when he said, remove the wicked man from among yourselves, it was by killing them, even your rebellious son, you led the parade to stone him if you lived in that time and obeyed the Scripture. And now Paul uses the same language under the new covenant about excommunication, removal from the church, and creating that distance and that separation in which you don't even give a greeting that would make it seem that you approve of this person's life. You don't entertain them in your home. Thus you shall purge the evil person from among you. Well, we have to make that kind of judgment. We have to do what God commanded us to do. We have to recognize the seriousness of evil in the church. And we have to keep it from damaging the church. So in relatively few words, Paul tells them all of that and then moves on. It's unpleasant to deal with these circumstances, but it's not hard to know what to do. And if it grieves you, well, it was supposed to grieve you. But you still have to do what you have to do. And we can conclude from this passage that God is very concerned about the purity of his church, far more concerned about the purity of his church than about what the sinners want or what the sinners claim would um, make them happy countless men tell me, but God, God wants me to be happy, and this is making me happy. No, God wants you to be faithful to the wife that you married, not this other one. What about being happy? God's more concerned about the purity of his church than the, than the thinking of somebody saying, I know God understands about my sin. I know he understands. He's also more concerned about the purity of the church than he is about how comfortable you are with having to do something unpleasant. Your comfort with the concept of church discipline is not on God's priority list. Your obedience is on there, but not your comfort. If it's hard, do something hard when it's called for. It's God's purpose that we would all follow that first path to purity. This second path to purity is what you have to do when you have to do it. But it's God's purpose that, that we're, we, we hear the truth of Scripture, our hearts come under conviction, we repent of our sins, and we return to Christ. Ideally, we, we believe the gospel. We're drawn to Christ, and 
in salvation, and he forgives all of our sins forever, right at the start, as soon as we believe him, and we walk with him in purity. And whenever we do sin, we repent, and we ask him to forgive us, and and we stay pure that way. That's the plan. But when somebody will not work that plan, then we have to be tough so that we're not ruined by that sin in the church. And we do it remembering that the sinner's best chance of being restored is if the church will obey his processes of church discipline. And those that that resist even that level of discipline, there's coming a horror that will make being put out of a church seem inconsequential. God is not playing on the subject of sin. He says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So to us, our sins seem like not a big deal. And I can always find somebody worse than me to point out and think I'm, I'm doing okay. I think it was John MacArthur that said that thinking ends with the last two drunks in the gutter pointing at each other going, no, he's worse than I am. What, is that the standard? There's a worse fool than you, so you're okay with God? No, the standard is purity. You only get that in Christ. And your sins are much more horrible than you can even imagine. And Christ, God is much more offended than you can even conceive. His wrath is stored up for those who will not repent. He sent his son to provide the only way for anyone to be saved. And one who rejects his son will not be saved, no matter how hard they've tried to live a good life. Let every man and woman face the reality stated in Psalm 2.12. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you for this challenging passage to remind us of how serious sin is. But it also reminds us of how magnificent your grace is. That anyone can come to you and acknowledge their guilt before you and ask for mercy and receive that mercy. We glory in how how generous you are with your grace. How most of the time, The first path to purity works because you save people and you keep them clean. We glory in you and your goodness. We pray as we process on the meaning of this passage that you would would continue to help us and bless us and grow us. Any who are struggling with the reality of having to actually do this one day, I pray you would help help them to get their thinking in line with yours. Any who do not know you at all, Lord, we beg your mercy on them. There's, this is just a glimpse at how serious you are about sin. Let them, let them come under conviction and come to you and cry out for mercy. We ask your blessings in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.